1: With Dr. Frank Turek. A friend of mine and another Christian apologist sent out an email uh, the other day about defending Christmas. And many people were very upset that he would try and defend a pagan holiday, he said. And he wasn't trying to defend the holiday, he was trying to defend the fact that Jesus came to earth as God in human flesh. But what about this? Is, is there any truth to the idea that Christmas is a pagan holiday? Should we be in any way celebrating Christmas? I mean, where do that Christmas holiday traditions come from? St. Nicholas, Santa Claus, gift giving, stockings, Xmas. What about nativity scenes? The North Pole, reindeer, elves. Does that have anything to do with, with Christianity or Christmas? Well, there's probably no better person to talk about this than my friend Bill Federer. We had Bill on just a few weeks ago to talk about uh, Thanksgiving, and he is just a wonderful historian who, who can give such a broad view of history. And he helps you see how all the puzzle pieces fit together and where certain traditions come from, whether they did have a Christian origin or not. So we're going to talk to Bill for the entire program here, Christmas week. So Merry Christmas to everyone. And Bill, it's always great having you on the program. How are you? Hey,
0: it's great to be with you, Frank.
1: Now, we just talked about Thanksgiving, and that was such a fascinating discussion that I said at the end of that, we've got to talk about Christmas. So here we are a few weeks later talking about Christmas. Bill, why don't we start with someone by the name of St. Nicholas, because you point this out... You put out an email every day, uh, and people can get, can subscribe to Bill's email, AmericanMinute.com, AmericanMinute.com. And uh, you sent me one that had to do with Christmas, which was just fascinating. It started with this guy by the name of St. Nicholas. Why don't we just start there? Tell us who he was and what he did.
0: Well, St. Nicholas is the most popular Greek Orthodox saint. He is to the Greeks what uh, St. Patrick is to the Irish. And he lived during Roman times. So for the first three centuries of Christianity, there are ten major persecutions. Christians are thrown to the lions. And Pat, um, Nicholas is born around 280 AD in a town called Patara, Asia Minor. Today, that's Turkey. And his parents die when a plague sweeps through town and leaves him a lot of money. And a movement was going through Christianity at the time called Pietism, beginning of the monasticism movement. And it was this idea that if you were if you were really sincere about being a Christian, you should give away all your money and join a monastery. And so Nicholas decides he's going to give away all the money he inherited from his parents. And so he wants to help the poor, but he doesn't want to get the credit for it. So he sneaks into town at nighttime and throws the money in the window of poor people. Supposedly, it lands in a shoe or a stocking that's drying by the fireplace. And one of the stories that was very popular. You see it on a lot of Middle Ages churches and stained glass windows and Greek Orthodox churches, mosaics. And you'll see Nicholas on his tippy toes. Uh, You know, he's a saint with a halo around his head, and he's reaching up and he's throwing some money in the window. And inside is a man with three daughters. And so the story is that this man was a merchant and he had gone bankrupt. And back then the creditors would not only take your house and lands, they would take your children. This uh, this merchant had three beautiful daughters and knew if they were taken, it would be an unfortunate life of trafficking and so forth. So he had an idea. He thought if he could hurry up and marry the daughters off, the creditors couldn't take them. Unfortunately, he did not have money for a dowry, which was needed in that area of the world for a legally recognized wedding. Nicholas hears the problem late one night, throws some money in the window, provides the dowry. The oldest daughter gets married. Big buzz, talk to the town, Throws some money in for a second daughter. By the third time, the dad is expecting it. Nicholas throws the money in. The dad runs outside and catches him. And Nicholas makes the father promise not to tell where the money came from. Why? Because he wanted the glory to go to God and not to him. And so this is the origin of the tradition of secret gift-giving on the anniversary of Nicholas's death, stockings by the fireplace, midnight visits. And um, uh, once he does give away all his money, he does decide to join a monastery. It's the Monastery of Zion. Now, all this history is Greek Orthodox history, and believe me, they've got lots and lots of stuff. There's more Greek Orthodox churches named after St. Nicholas than anybody else. And so he is going to the Holy Land, and it's the Monastery of Zion, and, um, uh, by the way, um, those three bags of gold he throws in the window to help out those that family, he ends up being considered the patron saint of pawnbrokers. What? <laughs> right. So pawnbrokers hang three gold balls outside of their shop to, uh, to represent the three bags of gold that Nicholas throws in. And they say, well, we help families out in, in their time of financial need. And It's like, yeah, that's a little bit of a stretch, but whatever. Um, now, now but, Bill,
1: at, at the time, you're talking early 300s A.D., right? He's living—where right? is he living, uh, St. Nicholas? Well,
0: it's it, Patara, Asia Minor. Today, that's Turkey.
1: Turkey. Okay. Okay. Uh, Patara. Okay. All right. And so he goes over to the Holy Land, going
0: to join this monastery of Zion. But before he does, the Lord tells him not to hide his light under a bushel. So he decides to go back to Asia Minor, but not before visiting the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem. And uh, so the uh, picture of Santa Claus kneeling at the, at the baby Jesus' crib, there's actually a little historical precedent for that. Uh, he visits, and so Mark Twain visits the Holy Land in the 1860s and writes a book about it called Innocence Abroad. And he says, this spot Where the first Merry Christmas was uttered in all the world, and from whence the friend of my childhood, Santa Claus, departed on his first journey to gladden and continue to gladden the roaring firesides on wintry mornings in many a distant land forever and forever. So um, anyway, so he leaves, goes back to Asia Minor today, that's Turkey, gets off at a busy city called Myra. Unbeknownst to him, the bishop of Myra had died, and the church leaders could not decide who the next bishop's going to be. And one of them has a dream that the first person to church the next day would be named Nicholas, and he was to be their next bishop. Well, Nicholas was not too excited about this. Um, He goes there, and they break the news to him. He was not too excited because the Roman Emperor Diocletian was arresting bishops and killing them. Mm. So it was sort of like, you be the bishop. No, 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 I insist, you first. (laughs) No, 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 you be the bishop. (laughs) That's right. And um, So anyway, he, he does agree to be the bishop. He is arrested. He's put in prison. He's awaiting death. And suddenly Diocletian, the emperor that's trying to exterminate Christianity, I mean, this guy was terrible. He lost some battles with Persia, asked his generals why. They said, well, you've neglected the Roman gods. So he says, okay, military, worship the Roman gods. Well, by this time, there were some Christians, a lot of Christians in the military, they're all forced out. Then he decides to take the military and force the entire Roman Empire to returning to worshiping the Roman gods. And they go province by province, tearing down churches, burning scriptures, cutting out tongues. Anyway, so uh, Nicholas is in jail awaiting death. Diocletian is struck with an intestinal disease so painful, he abdicates the throne, steps down, May 1st, 305 AD. This is unheard of, an emperor stepping down, and you have to appreciate the poetic humor. Emperors had been declaring themselves a god, sprinkling gold dust in their hair and demanding that their image be worshipped. So this was sort of like a god resigning. I just think Mm. that's sort of funny. Um, But the next emperor, Galerius, he continues the persecution of Christians. He is struck with an intestinal disease, must have been something in the water. He dies in 311 A.D., and now it's confusion in the Roman Empire, and uh, four generals decide to fight it out as to who's going to be the next emperor. Who are quickly defeated? It comes down to Constantine and Maxentius. Constantine is a general stationed in York, Britain. And when his men get the news, they surround him and yell, Hail Caesar, we're with you. And so he marches toward Rome. And it's the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, October 28, 312 AD. And the story is that Constantine saw the sign of Christ in the sky, puts it on all of his shields and symbols and wins. And what's the sign of Christ that he saw? It was the first two Greek letters for the name Christ. So Christ is a Greek name. And the Greeks spell it, and phonetically, the, the letter that makes the K sound, the Greeks write, as a big X, it's called Chi. And the R-sounding letter is called Rho, and it's written as a big P. So you see the Chi, rho these X and P on all the early Roman uh, 4th century art. And uh, then Constantine legalizes Christianity 313, But I hear the music and I'll come back. with the. All right, hold your thought, Bill.
1: We're going to come right back. We're talking to the great Bill Federer. We're talking about where do Christmas traditions come from. You're going to be more surprised right after the break. I'm Frank Turk. Don't go away. We're back in two. Where do Christian traditions come from? Christmas Christian uh, traditions or the traditions that we celebrate now here in the United States. Where do all these come from? And our friend Bill Federer is giving us a great overview of the history of St. Nicholas and some of these Christian, or I should say Christmas traditions. And uh, before we go back to Bill, he mentioned that gift-giving really was something done by St. Nicholas. And at this time of year, in addition to giving gifts to your loved ones, if in any way we have benefited you and you feel led to give to us, we are a 501c3 organization, crossexamined.org. 100% of your donations goes to ministry, 0% to buildings. I want to mention we have a $20,000 matching grant given to us by a generous donor. Any dollar you give, up to $20,000 will be matched. So if you give $100, it'll be matched to $200. You give $1,000, matched to $2,000. You get the idea. All the donations are tax-deductible at crossexamined.org. That's crossexamined with a D on the end of it.org. And as you know, we spend most of our time in high schools and colleges to try and show people young people why christianity is true and particularly when we go to high schools and colleges we don't charge students a dime to be there and the only way we can go is if you provide the necessary funds for us to go so if you think that's a worthwhile mission and i hope you do given the fact that three out of four young people who are brought up in the church walk away from the church once they go to college then please, uh, as you give your year-end donations, consider crossexamined.org. Uh, all right, let me go back to our guest, Dr. – well, you're not a doctor, but you should be – Bill Federer, who has an amazing breadth of knowledge when it comes to historical events. And, Bill, just before the break, we, were, we got up to Constantine, who won the battle and became the Holy Roman Emperor – why don't we just pick it up right there, start right there, and uh, keep going on these Christmas traditions.
0: Right. Well, now, he was just plain emperor. The holy didn't happen until yeah, years that's later. True. Yeah. But uh, nevertheless, he uh, sees the sign of Christ in the sky. It's called the XP Cairo. And over the centuries, it got shortened just to the chi, or the mm-hmm. X, and it was called a Christ Cross or Chris Cross. And that's where you get the Xmas. X hyphen M-A-S, it's not the X crossing out Christ, it's X Chi, the Greek letter that stands for Christ. And that came down as a written oath. So you'd sign a document and swear before Christ that it's true. You'd sign it the Christ cross, sign it the X, or put your X here, or I swear, cross my heart. What's that? says the Chi. And then they would kiss the document after they signed it to show sincerity. And that's come down to us as the X's and the O's on the bottom of a valentine. Right, the extra sworn before Christ to keep your pledge and the oath you're kissing it to show sincerity. Anyway, uh, that's the Cairo. Over the, uh, at this time, Nicholas is let out of jail, and now that Constantine made it okay, so this is the first time in history that the government is not persecuting Christians.
1: My right, friends, and, we got to stop right here for a second, Bill, because I don't think many people realize that Christianity spread in spite of the sword being used on it. I mean, people think that Christianity spread through use of the sword, as if the Crusades began right from the very beginning, people who don't have a good, clear view of history. The Crusades don't begin until about 1095 A.D., friends. It wasn't until, what, 311 A.D. or 312 A.D., Bill, that Christianity basically got a reprieve from the persecutions?
0: Right, right. 312 AD is when uh, the Battle of the Milvian Bridge with Constantine, and then he officially issues the Edict of Milan in 313 AD. And um, and now Nicholas is out of prison. He preaches publicly against paganism. What's that? Nearby is the Temple to Diana at Ephesus, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This thing is twice as big as the Parthenon in Athens. It has 127 huge fillers and temple prostitutes. It was the Las Vegas and the Mediterranean, and the Apostle Paul preached against Diana worship in Acts chapter 19. And so Nicholas preaches against it, and the people tear the temple to Diana down. So he would have been a fire and brimstone preacher today during this time they end the Olympics right? I went to school in Rome. We went to Olympus and saw where they ran them. And it was basically just a a foot raise, a javelin, a discus throw, and some wrestling. But they did it without clothes on. I won't get into it all, but it was pretty pagan. (laughs) And so they outlawed the Olympics. And then Nicholas preaches against exposure of unwanted infants. What's that? The Roman tradition was the mother would bear the child, lay it at the father's feet. If he picked it up and liked it, thought they could afford it, they'd keep it. If not, she had to put it in a basket and set it outside the house and let it die. And so a lot of the Christians would hear these babies crying and rescue them. This is where you get those stories of, you know, a mother putting the baby in a basket on the doorstep of some old couple and knocking the door and then running away. And the old couple comes out and sees this baby in a basket and raises them up. And so uh, this is called exposure of unwanted infants. And so the Christians and Nicholas preached against this. So he would have been a pro-life preacher. This, I mean, mm-hmm. it was their version of abortion, the Romans. And so Nicholas would have been a pro-life preacher today. And then there's you, the Aryan heresy. What's okay, that? Hang on
1: one sec. Hang on one sec, Bill. I just want to bring, bring people up to date, because as you know, radio is a, uh, is a stream, not a pond. Some people are coming in and out. You're listening to Cross-Examine with Frank Turk, and my guest is Bill Federer. His website is AmericanMinute.com. Go there. Not only can you read just about everything we're talking about here, but— Bill has uh, an entry for almost every day of the year up on his website and so many great historical nuggets there that you can learn from Bill Federer. So check that out. Right now we're talking about the, the where do the Christmas holiday traditions come from. And when Bill's referring to Nicholas, he's talking about St. Nicholas, who was a real person who lived in the early 300s, late 200s, early 300s A.D. And he actually had something to do with the Nicene Creed, believe it or not. Pick it up right there, Bill.
0: Right. So the same way you got Patrick in Ireland conferring the Druids, and he stood up for the Trinity, well, you have Nicholas. And so a guy named Arius uh, says that uh, Jesus is a little less than God. He's a created being. And Arius writes this catchy song, and the Visigoths, who were a people group that immigrated into Rome, they converted en masse to Arianism. And now it's splitting the church. And since Constantine made Christianity the de facto religion of the state, now it's splitting the state and the Roman Empire. So Constantine's like, what's up? So he orders all the bishops to come to Nicaea and settle it. This is the first time in history that all the Christian leaders come together at one place. Constantine foots the bill. There's about 500 bishops and altogether about 1,500 with their staff. And they settle it. They They write the Nicene creed. And the uh, story is that Nicholas was so upset at Arius for starting this heresy that Nicholas slapped Arius across the face. Mm. So jolly old Saint Nick had a little temper. You better watch out if he's coming to town. <laughs> is that and, where that uh, comes from. Okay. So not only did he uh, confront heretics, he confronted corrupt politicians. So there was a Roman governor doing corrupt stuff, and he's going to blame some innocent soldiers and have them be executed to cover up his corruption. Nicholas hears about it, rushes down to the execution square, breaks through the crowd, grabs the sword out of the executioner's hand, throws it down, and then by the power of the Holy Spirit, tells every corrupt thing that the governor was doing. The governor realizes nobody could know all this except God, and gets on his knees and begs Nicholas to pray for him. And uh, so there's lots of stories the Greeks have, and some have a miraculous aspect. One is there was a storm, and Myra being a port city, the sailors' fishermen couldn't get back. They get Nicholas to pray. The sea becomes calm. They can come back. So he's considered the, quote-unquote, patron saint of sailors. And so through the Middle Ages, artwork on churches, you'll see storms, and then there'll be in the clouds. There'll be a Nicholas, or he'll be, have a statue holding a boat. Um, and then there was a famine in the area. Nicholas supposedly went down, talked some sailors into unloading some of their grain that's going from North Africa to Rome to unload it to feed his people, promising God would bless them for doing it. On their return trip, they say the grain that was left had multiplied, sort of like Elijah and the little widow's meal barrel in the Book of Kings. Um, he dies December 6, 343 AD. Uh, the Roman emperor Justinian builds a big church and names it after Nicholas, and then it gets a plug with Vladimir the Emperor of Russia, 988 A.D. He converts to um, Eastern Orthodox Christianity and adopts Nicholas as the patron saint of Russia. So there are more St. Nicholas Russian Orthodox churches than named, and than any other name for a Russian hey, Orthodox church. That's the hey, most popular St. Nicholas Russian Orthodox church. And, hey, Bill, um,
1: can, and, can we pause here for just a second? I just want to ask you kind of a broad theological question now, because we in the West— many of us don't have a decent handle on what, say, Greek Orthodox or Russian Orthodox people believe that's different from, say, the church in the West, whether it's the Roman Catholic Church or Protestant churches. What's unique, say, about a Greek Orthodox church, just generally, in terms of their theological beliefs?
0: Well, the... When Diocletian split the Roman Empire into the East and the West, with Rome as the capital of the West, Constantinople, um, and so the, um, uh, what, uh, I mean, I guess Constantin- Constantine originally did it, but Diocletian f- furthered it. Um, the Greeks speak Greek, the West speak well, Diocletian Latin, was before
1: Constantine, um, though, right? I but mean, as
0: far right. as the Church goes, 1054 AD, there's a divorce. Okay. The Greeks say in the Nicene Creed that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father— Mm-hmm. and the catholic west says the holy spirit proceeds from the father and the son and um the muslims could care less they want to kill them all but um <laughs> there's other differences the greek orthodox priests can marry and the catholics you know don't and mm-hmm. um but um the um uh one is uh f- the greek orthodox think that epiphany january 6 is the holiest day of the year and the Catholic West thought that December twenty fifth, Christmas is the holiest day of the year. And so at the Consulate Tours in five sixty seven AD, they tried to patch up the East and the West by making all twelve days between December twenty fifth and January sixth the twelve days of Christmas. Oh. So the twelve days of Christmas is not the twelve days leading up to Christmas. It's the twelve days between December twenty fifth, January sixth, and it was a patch. Uh, a patch of effort to try to get the East and West to say, still stay hooked together. And so they call them Holy Days, and over mm-hmm. the years, Holy Days got pronounced holiday.
1: Now, so is it's there... very funny
0: when they say, well, we don't want to say Merry Christmas, just say Happy Holidays. Well, holidays yeah, the Holy Days, <laughs> what are the Holy Days, but other than the 12 <laughs> days of Christmas, okay? Now,
1: now how, much, how much of a difference is there between the Greek Orthodox Church and the Russian Orthodox Church theologically?
0: Uh, my understanding is very little. Uh, okay. It's mostly just the hierarchy, with each of them having their their uh, main archbishop, which would be the equivalent of a pope. Uh, they just have a different hierarchy, uh, but, but theologically it's pretty similar. Um, okay. Uh, but now it's important to the East and the West. So the East is being invaded by Islam, and mm-hmm. Turkey uh, used to be the Byzantine Christian Empire. And all seven churches mentioned in the Book of Revelation are wiped out. All the letters to Ephesus— The city of Ephesus and Colossae, Galatia, Philippi, Corinth, all those cities are wiped out by the Muslim Turks who are invading. And so the Christians um, don't want the grave of St. Nicholas destroyed, because as they would come in, they would destroy the graves and the churches and artwork. The Muslims. Uh, Muhammad said, leave no high grave standing nor a work of art without obliterating it. Right. And so, in 1087, they move the bone to Nicholas over to Italy, a little town called Bari, B-A-R-I. They build a church, and Pope Urban II dedicates the church.
1: All right, hold the thought, and Bill. We're going to come know right this back. Hold, this is, hold the thought. We're going to come Pope back. Urban II
0: calls for the first crusade.
1: We're talking to, we're talking to Bill Federer, who, as you can see, just wonderfully strings together history, so you can see where some of these Christmas holiday traditions come from. And his website is AmericanMinute.com. Our website, CrossExamine.org. we got a lot more with Bill Federer right after the break. I'm Frank Turek. Don't touch that dial. Merry Christmas, ladies and gentlemen. You're listening to Cross Examine with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. This week and next week, you're going to sit down. Whether it's over Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, you're going to sit down at a holiday dinner. And you're probably going to be sitting down with people who are not Christians and you want to somehow get them the gospel. How can you do it? Well, if you had, if you had signed up for our email, you would have gotten an email uh, that said the top 10 ways to advance the gospel at Christian or at Christmas holiday dinners or at holiday dinners. The top 10 ways to advance the gospel at holiday dinners with people who are not Christians. Well, if you don't have our email, if you didn't sign up at crossexamine.org, if you go there and hit subscribe, you can get the one email we send out a week. But we actually took that email and we put it in a blog. So it's on our website, crossexamine.org. The top 10 ways to advance the gospel at holiday dinners. Read it before you have an awkward Christmas or other holiday meal because there are some tips in there that will help you advance the gospel in a tactful way way check it out the top 10 ways it's up there okay we're talking to my friend bill federer who is taking us through history all the way from saint nicholas back in who was born in 280 AD right now we're uh we're in about the 1100s AD because we're trying to figure out what the origin of many christmas traditions that we experience today what what are the what are the origin of these christmas traditions and christianity is behind them But somehow they get sometimes convoluted, as you can see. So, Bill, pick it up where we left off. I think you were talking about a church that was built uh, in the town of Bari uh, in Italy because they took St. Nicholas's bones from an area that was about to be overrun by Muslims. Pick it up right there with Pope Urban II. What happened there?
0: So the Muslims are invading Greece. They moved the most popular Greek saint over to Italy. Uh, Pope Urban II builds a church Names it after him, uh, Catedral Nicolo de Bari. And uh, we know Pope Urban because he went to the Council of Claremont, 1095 A.D., and begs the kings of Europe to send help to these Greeks that are being killed by this uh, Islamic invasion. And they send help. It's called the First Crusade. Mm-hmm. So the same pope that welcomes Nicholas' traditions to Western Europe is the one that calls for the First Crusade. So in a backward sense, we may mm-hmm. not have had a Saint Nicholas in Western civilization if it had not been for jihad in the East. But uh, now the traditions uh, of gift-giving really catch on, and the the Italians really love it, so much so that sort of in protest, St. Francis of Assisi in 1223 A.D. comes up with the first nativity scene, the creche scene. The Jesus, Mary, Joseph, donkeys in the manger, saying, look, we're getting too materialistic. We need to get back to the real reason for the season. Jesus was born in the manger, the Son of God, Emmanuel, God with us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So (laughs) some of these struggles that you talked about at the beginning of the program, uh, this was faced in the 1200s. And then the Reformation starts 1517. Martin Luther, by this time there is a saint's day for every day of the year. Churches are filled full of statues. Martin Luther considers this a distraction so he ends the saints days in Protestant countries, including the popular Saint Nicholas Day. Well, the Germans like the gift giving. So Martin Luther moves all the gift giving to December 25th and says all gifts come from the Christ child. Mm. And the German pronunciation of Christ child is Chris Kindle. Chris meaning Christ, kindle like kindergarten, kindergarten means child. So Chris Kindle ends up being pronounced Chris Kringle. So Chris Kringle is really Chris Kindle, which means Christ child.
1: Anyway, this is fascinating um, stuff, Bill. This is just, if I, by the way, you can get an email from Bill every day. Just go to AmericanMinute.com and sign up for the email. You can get one email from us a week at Crossexamine.org. Click on subscribe. But Bill, this is such fascinating stuff. I want to pause on just a couple of things that you had mentioned there. You would mentioned the First Crusade uh, was ordered or at least asked for by per- Pope Urban II in 1095 A.D. And a lot of people think the Crusades at least as initially conceived, were kind of these offensive uh ways of trying to convert people by the sword. Why is that not the case?
0: Well the Muslims took over Egypt and the Coptic Christians begged the West for help and they were gonna send help until the Emperor got his his head broken and a somebody broke a soap dish over his head in a bath. Um but for centuries the um the different Christians in these Countries where Christianity originated um, were crying out for help, and the West would sit on their hands and sort of like today, uh, under our previous president, there was a genocide of millions of Christians in the Middle East, and even John Kerry had to admit it was a genocide and what did we in the West do? Uh, nothing now it finds out that we were actually giving guns to the ones doing the killing and um, and so this is a typical thing where the Christians are begging for help, and the West isn't. Finally, Pope Urban said, enough, we need to send help to these Greek Christians. And um, now, it's in, back to the, to the Nicholas story, um, it's important to understand, uh, you know, the Catholic saying, St. Peter's at the gates of heaven, Well, the Greeks do a saying, and it's based on the book of Revelation, that Jesus will return at the end of the world to judge the living and the dead, riding a white horse, and the saints will come back with him, riding white horses. And St. Nicholas is a saint after all, so he will be one of those riding a white horse. But he's so special to the Greeks, they have him coming back once a year for a little mini judgment day, Mm. a little checkup on the kids, make sure they're on the right track, see who's naughty, see who's nice. And saints come from where? Heaven, the celestial city, New Jerusalem. It turns into the North Pole. And in Norway, they didn't have horses. They got him riding a reindeer. And the Lamb's Book of Life and Book of Works turns into the Book of the Naughty and the Nice, and the Angels turn into the Elves. And so you can see what started as a biblical uh, idea is embellished with uh, a lot of the uh, additions there. Um, so we look at England. So Martin Luther brings the Reformation to Germany, and Henry VIII brings the Reformation to England. But not because he had a spiritual experience. He just wants another wife. The right. Pope won't recognize his divorce. He makes himself his own Pope. And he brings back an old Roman holiday. Britain used to be a Roman colony, and the holiday is Saturnalia, and it's feasting and plenty and merriment, and if you've ever seen The Christmas Carol with Charles Dickens, there's the spirit of Christmas present, and he's this big guy with robes, with wreath in his hair, goblet of wine, the ho-ho happy party guy, and um, you're scratching your head saying, who is he? He sort of looks like Santa, but he also sort of looks like some Roman god. Well, that's who he was. He was Saturn, but they Christianized him, called him Father Christmas. They Mm -hmm. couldn't call him St. Nicholas because St. Nicholas was sort of outlawed in England uh, after the Reformation. And so during uh, Henry VIII's time, Christmas in England becomes sort of like a party time, sort of like a Mardi Gras. People forget Mardi Gras used to be a religious day. It was the day before Lent when you would fast 40 days before Easter. Now it's just lewd party in New Orleans. That's sort of what happened with Mardi Gras: it was drinking, carousing, wassailing, where you take a drink of booze and throw the rest of it on some plant, hoping for a nice harvest the next year. And so, when the Puritans took over England in 1642, they outlawed Christmas. They even tore down Shakespeare's Globe Theatre because they said it was a place for, you know, lewd activity taking place. And uh, the Puritans settled Massachusetts. And they had a five-shilling fine for anybody caught celebrating Christmas. Puritan leader Cotton Mather said, Can you in your conscience think that our holy Savior is honored by mad, mirth, long-eating, hard-drinking, lewd, gaming, rude revelry, fit for a Bacchus or a Mohammedan Ramadan? You cannot possibly think so. And so uh, it was the Dutch that loved Christmas and loved St. Nicholas, and the Dutch settled New York in 1624, and so that's where we get our traditions from. So the Dutch still, to this day, have Saint Nicholas coming once a year as a saint, as a bishop, with his mitered hat, his staff, and his robes, and he's riding a white horse. And they have him coming from Spain, and he has with him a little Moorish-costumed helper, Zwarte Piet. Well, the Moors are the Muslims, and Zwarte Piet, Black Peter, uh, is this little helper of uh, Saint Nicholas. Now, the Dutch pronunciation of St. Nicholas is Sant-Niklaus, or Sinterklaas, Saint niklaus So if you basically, we're, when we say Santa Claus, you're saying the Dutch pronunciation of St. Nicholas. And uh, so anyway, in mm-hmm. Holland, they tell the kids, if you're good, St. Nicholas gives you a present. If you're naughty, Zwarte Piet will put you in a gunny sack, take you back to Spain, and sell you into Muslim slavery. Mm-hmm. So often when you tell little kids that, Santa Claus is coming. They start crying. They start, you know. <laughs> I actually talked to a guy from Holland. He said, Yeah, in my neighborhood, the night before St. Nicholas visited, all the little boys would go to sleep at night with pocket knives in their pockets. I said, Why is that? He goes, That's to cut ourselves out of the gunny sack in case Varte Pete took us. And um, anyway, so people forget the, the Muslims enslaved over a, a million Europeans. There were entire Catholic orders through the Middle Ages called the Trinitarians. The head of the order was called the Ransomer, and they would collect alms and donations at church services to try to get your friend back who was captured by Muslim pirates or whatever. And um, So anyway, the Dutch settled New Amsterdam, which became New York, and the first Dutch Reformed church is the St. Nicholas Dutch Reformed Church. Mm. And it ends up becoming this enormous church there at uh, 49th and 5th Avenue, or 48th. uh, But as it turns into a financial district, the people move out, and it's this big cavern with nobody going there, and they sell it to Sinclair Oil Company in 1948. They tear it down and build an oil building. But the church moved out uh, to a different location. They called it the Marble Collegiate Church, and um, it had Norman Vincent Peale as a pastor, and among the attendees was Donald Trump. How do you like that? But the Roosevelts, they're a Dutch name. They went to this St. Nicholas Dutch Reformed Church. And um, you know, Teddy Roosevelt went to Saint Nicholas Dutch Reformed Church. Anyway, so in New York, you see a trans- transformation. Washington Irving, we know him because he wrote *Legend of Sleepy Hollow*, Rip Van Winkle, and he wrote Dietrich Knickerbocker's History of New York from the Dutch settlement to the end of the Dutch Dynasty, 1809. In there, he names the city Gotham City, and it stuck. And the Dietrich Knickerbocker became such a popular book that it turned into the New York Knicks, the basketball game.
1: Yeah, I was always wondering, what's a Knickerbocker?
0: (laughs) Yeah, and so there was a a Dutch uh, name. And so um, he describes St. Nicholas visiting the Dutch children, riding in his wagon over the treetops, throwing out presents once a year to his favorites. But he describes him not dressed as a bishop, but in a typical Dutch outfit of long trunk hose, leather belt, boots, and a stocking hat. And then in New York, you have Clement Moore. His family donates land for the Episcopal Seminary. He's a Hebrew professor. And there's a Clement Moore Park at 10th and 22nd in New York right now. And um, anyway, he writes a poem 1823 for his six children titled, A Visit from St. Nicholas. It was a night before Christmas, and all through the house not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care in hopes that St. Nicholas would soon be there. So he's still a saint, but he's shrunk. He's a right jolly, plump, old elf. I laughed when I saw him in spite of myself. Uh, but then in the middle 1800s, he got something else added on. Uh, Civil War. Harper's Weekly Magazine has an illustrator named Thomas Nast, N-A-S-T. We know him because he invented the Republican Elephant and the Democrat mule for his political cartoons. Hold us all right there.
1: Hold us all right there, Bill, because man, we are covering the waterfront here, aren't we? We're looking at the origin of Christmas holiday traditions. And you can see that when you go back far enough, you get to Christianity. They kind of get convoluted as they go through history. But there really is a Christ in Christmas, and uh, we'll get back to that and see if Bill thinks we ought to worship on this day. I'm Frank Turk. back in two. Going into the last break, I ran out of time. Of course, we should worship every day. My question for Bill Federer toward the end of this segment will be, well, is a Christian, the Christmas, a pagan holiday then? Should we celebrate it or not? I know a lot of Christians think we ought not to, but we'll ask Bill here in a few minutes. We're talking to Bill Federer and uh, his website, AmericanMinute.com. As you can see, he is just a wealth of wonderful information uh, historically, and he helps us see where these Christmas traditions uh, have come from. Uh, before we get back to Bill, I want to mention, first of all, I want to thank those of you that have gone to our iTunes page, the one with my picture on it. There's two of them. Go to the one with my picture on it. Uh, our our social media and international director, uh, Jorge Gill put up a new um, a new iTunes page that we can control a little bit more and and uh, we can uh, put some more information up there than the other page. So if you would go to that page and uh, give us a five-star review, that would help us in the rankings so more people will actually hear this podcast. I don't know how that works, but it does work. So if you would do that for us, just go to uh, iTunes and look up podcast, cross-examine podcast, again, the one with my picture on it. Give us a positive review there. That would be very, very helpful. Uh, and uh, it'll help this get to more and more people. All right, my friend Bill Federer. Bill, we were talking uh, before the break uh, about uh, Santa Claus and where we got that uh, from, and you were mentioning uh, a gentleman who had somehow uh, created a Santa Claus figure that looked like he does today, and you also said he created the Republican elephant and Democrat mule when I had to interrupt you due to the hard break. Pick it up right there.
0: Right, Thomas Nast, N-A-S-T. He's an illustrator for Harper's Weekly Magazine, and he invented the Republican elephant, Democrat mule. He does a cover of St. Nicholas visiting the Union troops, and he's sitting on his wagon full of toys. And in the background, you see a little North Pole sign. Lo and bold, that's the first time St. Nicholas is coming from the North Pole. Prior to that, it was always, you know, Celestial City, New Jerusalem, and so forth. Uh, but the last installment is Coca-Cola. Uh, hires an artist, Haden Sunblum. Now, wait, we know minute, him wait, because
1: Bill. He... Bill, let, let me let me just because I see in the in the uh, email you put out. By the way, you can get an email from Bill every day, AmericanMinute.com. dot com. You'll get one about Christmas. This one we're talking about today, maybe on Christmas. I don't know, but it it was coming from the North Pole because was that a jab at the the Confederates in the South during the Civil War?
0: Right, right. So he he was a political cartoonist, and uh-huh. so it was a political jab at the South the Confederate South, to say St. Nicholas is associated with the North. <laughs> That's and uh, amazing. But prior to then, St. Nicholas came from Celestial City, New Jerusalem, Heaven. Um, but Coca-Cola... Even Santa
1: Claus is being politically maneuvered here.
0: <laughs> He's being exploited. <laughs> okay, go ahead. So uh, Haddon Sundblum is an artist who developed Quaker Man and Aunt Jemima, and he is hired by Coca-Cola in 1930 to do a painting of St. Nicholas, Santa Claus, Drinking Coke, does a uh, new picture every year for 33 years. And Coca Cola pioneered mass marketing. So this is the most recognizable image. He's full grown now. He's not a little elf. He's got rosy cheeks, right? Really big, huggable hand, grandfather character. Um, but we have to realize if you peel back in time, there really was a St. Nicholas. Mm-hmm. He lived in Asia Minor. Today, that's Turkey. And he loved Jesus. And he became a Christian and even uh, went into the ministry and was imprisoned, awaiting death from Roman Emperor Diocletian. And he was let out. He preached against sexual immorality, preached against—he was been a pro-life preacher, uh, preached stood up for the Trinity, confronted corrupt politicians. But above all, he was generous, and he gave to the poor, but he wanted to do it anonymously because he wanted the credit to go to God and not mm. to him. So uh, it's a fascinating story. Um, there's other it things. Seem- that are. I wrote a book, and the title of the book is There Really Is a Santa Claus History of St. Nicholas and Christmas Holiday Traditions. Some of the other traditions I get into is, um, why December 25th? and this is Yeah, why that?
1: Start there. Because a lot of people think that's in the Bible, and they think that, well, you know, Jesus really wasn't born then, so the Bible's wrong. They don't even realize it's not in the Bible. But where does it's December 25th? You know, I've heard the winter solstice was celebrated. And, and right, Christians so, um- just kind of put that uh, Christmas—let's let's call it Christmas. So how did this come about, this December 25th issue?
0: So the Gospel of Luke has uh, John the Baptist's dad, Zacharias, in the temple, and the people are praying outside. The angel appears to him, says he's going to have a son. He's supposed to name him John. And um, there's a little line you just skip past, and it says he is of the course of Abijah. What's that? King David divided the sons of Aaron, Eleazar and Ithamar, divided them into 24 family groups, and gave them each two turns a year at the temple to offer the incense. And the family of Abijah, uh, his turn at the temple, the descendants, is the end of September. And uh, it was known in the church calendar, but it was confirmed when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. And in 1958, Israeli scholar Sherman Yahu Talman, I'm not pronouncing that right, (laughs) Uh, publishes research from the Crumram Dead Sea Scrolls, Parchment Number 321, and he was able to reconstruct the Saradotal Rhoda calendar. What's that? That's the calendar that shows what families are, are uh, supposed to be ministering at what days. And the family of Abijah is supposed to be there on the 24th through the 30th of the 8th month, which would have worked out to the end of September. And so that's Yom Kippur. That's the Day of Atonement. And why is that important? Because it's normally around September 25th. And so if he went home and his wife Elizabeth gets pregnant around September 25th, then we know when the angel Gabriel appears to Mary, and by the power of the Holy Spirit she conceives, and he says, your cousin Elizabeth is in her sixth month, right? Mary goes Mm -hmm. to visit, and so six months after September 25th is March 25th, so the traditional church date for the angel appearing to Mary is March 25th. It's called the date of the Annunciation. Well, nine months after March 25th is what? December 25th. Hmm. And this was, this was known as the church calendar, but it was confirmed after the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and in 1958, this Israeli scholar published his findings of the sacerdotal rhoda calendar. Just a fascinating um, thing. Uh, and then there's the um, uh, Christmas tree, if we got time for that.
1: Go ahead, hit hit me with the Christmas tree. Yeah,
0: so the lights at that time first appear uh, Hanukkah. What's that? Uh, Jews are taken captive to Babylon. The Persian king Cyrus lets them go back. They rebuild, but then Persia is conquered by Alexander the Great, and he dies. His empire is cut into four pieces. And the general that takes Persia is Seleucus, and so there's a Seleucus descendant who's a king, and he decides he's going to just wipe out the Jews. Kills eighty thousand of them. And the Jews finally drive them out. It's called the Maccabean Wars. They go in around 165, uh, 164 BC, clean out the temple, and they're going to relight the candelabra, the menorah. But there's only enough oil for one day, but it lasts eight. Miraculously, so the word dedication in, in Hebrew is is Hanukkah. And so mm-hmm. in John chapter 20 says Jesus was in Jerusalem for the feast of dedication. He was in there for Hanukkah. And so this when lights would have uh, been first seen at this time of the year. But then the tree. So we got um, Nicholas is the Greek saint, and he's confronting paganism. you got Patrick is the saint to Ireland, and he's confronting pagan Druids. You have a saint from uh, Britain, and he becomes the one to confront the Germans. And so the Germanic tribes uh, that came across the Roman borders worshipped Thor. And that's where you get the word Thor's Day. And so, those that are really stickler about not wanting to celebrate Christmas, you better not call the name Thor's Day because Thor is a pagan god. And, matter of fact, the Quakers refused to call it Thursday. They call it Fifth Day because they didn't want to say it was Thursday because they didn't realize. <laughs> and so, Thor was this pagan god. Uh, they also worship Woden, another Germanic pagan god. That's where you get the word Wednesday. Uh, but Thor supposedly lived in a big oak tree in Geismar, Germany. And they would do human sacrifice in front of this tree. And so uh, this saint, Boniface, around 788 A.D., he um, goes to Geismar. He's also called Winfred. So Boniface or Winfred, he takes a big axe and he chops down Thor's tree. And uh, so then uh, somebody says, well, you can't do that. Somebody else says, well, Thor's really a god. He can protect his own tree. And so... This is the beginning of the Germans becoming Christians. So Boniface points at a little evergreen tree because it was the night before uh, Christmas. And he said, uh, let this be the tree of the Christ child. See how it points toward heaven. Its leaves are evergreen, symbolizing everlasting, everlasting life. Let it shelter no deeds of blood, but life, because your houses are built of fur, and so forth. So the Germans would take a little pine tree, and they would hang it upside down in their houses. And this was the symbolism that they defeated the pagan Thor and so forth. Uh, But Martin Luther's coming home around 1520, and he's a cold December sky, and the stars are twinkling. And he puts candles in the branches of the tree and says, This is like the sky above Bethlehem on the night of Christ's birth. Wow. And so, well, just a fascinating story, but uh, there really is a Santa Claus.
1: And you have an entire book on this, so if people really want to get into this, get the book by Bill Federer, There Really Is a Santa Claus, The History of St. Nicholas and Christmas Holiday Traditions. But Bill, before we go, with just about a minute or so to go, we've got to get to this question. You know, a lot of Christians say, oh, we can't worship or we can't celebrate, I should say, Christmas because it has pagan roots. What do you say to that?
0: Uh, We're celebrating the birth of Christ, and Jesus came, I love the book of Mark, it says that the Son of God came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. What's that? God is a just God. He has to judge every sin. It's his nature to judge sin. matter of fact, that's implanted in each of us so much that every NCIS episode, first two minutes somebody's killed, you're held captive the rest of the hour knowing that the person that did it has to be judged. There's something in you that drives—there's something in God that has to judge the sin. So what do you do? He himself provided the Lamb to take the judgment for the sin. And right. Jesus, the Word of God, became flesh, and He voluntarily submitted Himself to be the Lamb and to take the punishment. So God is just, that He has to judge every sin He's loving that He provided the Lamb to take the judgment for the sin. That's why we approach God through the Lamb. So I might, yeah. are you good enough to go to heaven? No, you'll never be good enough. But He was good enough to pay for all your sins, so you approach God through the Lamb, your debts have been paid.
1: And that's why we celebrate Christmas, because God came into the world as a Lamb, despite the fact that Some of these traditions may have been um, polluted a little bit with pagan ideas. What your intention is, is to bring people back to the real reason for the season. And that is Christ the Lamb. Bill, it's been wonderful having you on. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Frank. And it's all in the book. Uh,
0: There really is a Santa Claus history of St. Nicholas Christmas holiday traditions. And Merry Christmas to all and to all a
1: good night. Merry Christmas, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much. I'll see you here next week. God bless you all. See you next week.
0: The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast do not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.